0: Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show
1: unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at Schwab.com/slash WashingtonWise.
0: That's schwab.com slash WashingtonWise. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: Anything that comes into court wearing the mantle, the robe of science, claiming all of the trappings of science, ought to have to live up to the standards of science.
0: That's Eric Lander. He's the president and co-founder of MIT and Harvard's Broad Institute. It's a biomedical research lab that has played a central role in the development of CRISPR, a gene editing technology with profound implications for the future of disease and human development. A seminal figure in the mapping of the human genome, Lander has been a laboratory researcher, Harvard and MIT professor, and a thought leader in the growing field of genetics for more than three decades. Lately, he's been focusing on creating global rules for gene editing, helping to jumpstart innovative research companies, and finding more reliable ways to use DNA forensics as evidence in criminal trials. We'll get into all of that, plus the history of the Human Genome Project, the risks and rewards of scientific progress, and the role of the United States in the global quest to eradicate disease. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey folks, now it's time to get to your questions. I'm traveling with my family in Israel this week, so I didn't expect to be fully plugged into minute-by-minute news, so I took this opportunity to answer some questions that are not based on the ever-changing news cycle. Next week promises to be a big week, and we'll be back with a lot more analysis. This question comes in an email from Josh. Hi. Non-news cycle question for you. Trump prizes loyalty. I recall that W did too. I found it alarming then too. But on reflection i'm not sure i can put my finger on exactly why an emphasis on loyalty should be disconcerting and i've never been in a powerful executive role maybe the stresses and demands of that role make loyal aides imperative i'd love to hear you reflect on whether and why we should care about loyalty seekers well josh that's a great question and i think it turns on what you think loyalty means loyalty as i understand it is a wonderful thing is a fine thing i've been in executive roles and i've been in supporting roles And in the ordinary sense, I think executives and coworkers, even who are peers, deserve and expect a certain degree of loyalty from their colleagues. By that, I think you mean having your back, defending you, not throwing you under the bus, being above board and honest with you, and being generally supportive. If you need a helping hand, you're there to support your colleague. That's what I understand to be loyalty in the workplace. Loyalty and friendship is incredibly important. You protect your friends, you protect your family. And I think loyalty is an incredibly important quality. And I think you can judge people on whether they're loyal or disloyal. Whether they desert their friends in times of need, or they trample their friends in times of ambition, that tells you a lot about a person, and it turns on whether they are, the way most people understand it, loyal or not loyal. On the other hand, there are limits to loyalty. And the way in which Donald Trump sometimes seems to mean loyalty, I think, is deeply problematic and borderline criminal, if not actually criminal. So when the president of the United States wants people to be loyal to him above their loyalty to the Constitution or to the law or to ethical obligations, well, then that's not good loyalty. And it should be disconcerting and it should be called out and it should not be excused. So when the president of the United States, early in his tenure, pulls in Jim Comey, the FBI director, and talks about loyalty and the way he talked about loyalty was disconcerting to the FBI director and should be to every American because it seems that what he was talking about and what he seems often to be talking about is people putting personal loyalty to the president of the United States, meaning defending him at all costs, no matter what he has done, to put that kind of loyalty over obligations to the law, the rule of law and the public. That's a terrible thing and should not be countenanced. This question comes in an email from Robert. Dear Preet, I'd say this question belongs under the rubric of congressional trivia but I don't think it's trivial. When did it become common to prop up huge posters during congressional hearings? (laughs) They are obviously made for the audience and the television camera. Props that amount to propaganda for the side that resorts to these antics. And that side seems to be exclusively the Republicans. The posters stare the audience in the face, in the hearing rooms and on TV. They contribute nothing of substance to the hearings themselves. Why isn't this practice banned? I look forward to hearing your comments. (laughs) So I don't mean to belittle your question because it's a good one. I'm laughing only because... Uh, I was a congressional staffer for four and a half years. And even though maybe in recent times you've been seeing the posters used by Republicans, Democrats use them also. And they're not only used in the House, they're also used in the Senate. Although I typically did not see them used very often at hearings. Where I did see poster boards used was on the Senate floor. So you have a member of the Senate standing at his or her desk, giving a speech about some topic or about some nominee or about some bill. And there would be some poster board next to the senator That either had a chart, if you're talking about the economy, or you might have a pull quote from a nominee that you were voting against, or some other such thing. And when I talk about this, I get a little PTSD, because my job as chief counsel to Senator Schumer, when he was addressing something relating to my portfolio, whether judges or criminal law or something else along those lines, and he wanted to have a poster board, it was my job to get the poster board done, make sure it was done on time, rush to the floor of the Senate, and the senator would stand... And I had to procure the easel and I had to make sure it was positioned properly in my little staff chair sitting next to the senator. If you watch C-SPAN ever, you'll see that there's always a staffer standing next to the senator. And on occasions where there was a poster board of the type you describe, I was always incredibly nervous that I might knock it over and have an embarrassing moment on C-SPAN. I do remember in, in connection with hearings now that I think about it, during Supreme Court confirmation hearings, occasionally senators would use poster boards too. So the public could see some line from a decision that was rendered by the nominee, whether it was future Justice Roberts or future Justice Alito. And I remember there being even more nervous because you didn't have an easel and you would have to stand behind the member like I did on occasion and hold up the poster board and make sure you're, you know, you weren't nervous and shaky. And uh, invariably during those hearings, when I would hold up one of these posters, whether you thought they were silly or not. I would get snarky emails and texts from friends of mine saying, hey, great job holding up that poster. (laughs) That's why I got paid the big bucks. So, yeah, I hear your point. Sometimes the posters are silly. Sometimes they're self-defeating. I don't know when they began. They can sometimes be effective to reinforce a point. Both sides do it. Both chambers do it. I did note a few weeks ago, as others did, the quite silly poster that some of the Republicans put up in connection with the impeachment inquiry, and that was the one where Republican House members put up a poster with a number zero, a big number zero on it, to denote, according to the poster, the number of days since Adam Schiff followed the rules. I guess trying to make the point that he wasn't following the rules, but the literal meaning of their poster, zero days since he followed the rules, means that the day before, he was following the rules. So the poster boards, they're a feature of modern life, and I guess we have to suffer through them. This question comes from Twitter user Abra Behrens. Hi, Preet Bharara. My sister was just appointed as a federal judge and will be presiding over her first naturalization ceremony soon. Any words of advice? Asking for her because she doesn't have Twitter. Thanks and love your work. Hashtag AskPreet. Well, first of all, congratulations to your sister. It is a high honor. Not only do you get to be someone who delivers justice on a daily basis and people in the public count on judges to deliver justice on a daily basis, There's also that side benefit of life tenure. So I don't know if you're asking words of advice about the naturalization ceremony or about being a judge, but let me just comment on both. With respect to the naturalization ceremony, if it hasn't already passed, you should speak from the heart. I think outside of my official duties as U.S. attorney, the most moving thing I ever got to do was preside over a naturalization ceremony of scores of people who were swearing an oath of allegiance to the United States of America. And in particular, it was moving for me because I'm an immigrant, as you know and was naturalized at the age of 12, when my parents became citizens of the United States. I, in fact, brought my kids, took my kids out of school so they could come see the naturalization ceremony, and I brought my parents. And, in fact, at the end of the ceremony, when all these scores of people had been inducted as new citizens of the United States of America, my mom and dad came up to the front, and we all together led the new citizens in the Pledge of Allegiance. So she should enjoy that ceremony, take it in, and realize how marvelous a country this is, And she should, I hope, be an advocate personally and professionally for the country being open and welcoming to immigrants like me. Second, any words of advice of being a judge? Far be it for me to provide any advice, but I did a little bit in a chapter called Judges in my book, Doing Justice. And there's lots of different things that are difficult in the life of a judge and the work of a judge. And we ask them, as I say in my chapter, we ask them to be perfect. We ask them to be real. We ask them to be meticulous. We ask them to be infallible. We ask a lot of judges. And they're just people and they're just human beings. But from time to time, and I realize that people know that I use time to time a lot as a phrase, but from time to time, there were people in my office who sought to become judges and became judges. And when I was in the Senate, I helped shepherd nominees like your sister through the process and they became judges. But after I had been the U.S. attorney for a while, and from the perspective of being the head of the office, I would see some judges not treat lawyers in their courtroom very well. And so... Anytime a friend of mine is on the verge of becoming a judge, I actually give them a little speech, and I hope it is not patronizing to them, but I mean it with sincerity. And that is, you have a lot of power as a judge, and you wear a robe, and everyone respects you, and you can forget over time that the lawyers appearing before you are just people, whether they're prosecutors or they're the defense lawyers. And your words carry a lot of weight, and not just your words, but also your expressions and your sarcasm and your disdain it not only can affect the resolution of a case or the direction of a case because jurors see that, but even in proceedings that don't have jurors, it can affect the confidence and the self-worth of the people you are directing your ire towards. So I tell people when they're about to become a judge, I used a phrase that I will not repeat on air because it involves an expletive, but I would simply say, don't be a blank. And I'll say for the purposes of this, I would say, don't be a jerk. There will come a time you'll be tired and you'll be sitting on the bench And some assistant U.S. attorney who's new to the job will say something that you don't agree with or you think is not a good argument, and you'll snap at that person, and you won't think it's a big deal. But to that assistant, who is trying to make his or her way as a young lawyer, practicing at the highest level, it can be very debilitating. And I've seen it happen. And there's no need for it. You're the judge. You're the presiding officer in the courtroom. The marshals report to you. Everyone in the courtroom stands when you walk in. They stand when you walk out. And by the way, that admonition to judges to remember that the people in front of them are people and there's no need to mock them or debilitate them just because you can also applies to other people who appear before you, including criminal defendants. I recite a story in my book that hopefully has had some resonance with judges who hadn't thought of this issue before. But in my experience, typically judges in the Southern District of New York address the parties at the beginning of a proceeding. And I don't think they mean anything by this. And I don't think it occurred to me until well into my tenure at the U.S. Attorney's Office But So judges might say, good morning, Ms. Prosecutor, good morning, Ms. Defense Lawyer, and I note the presence of the defendant. So there's a human being's greeting offered to the defense lawyer, to the prosecutor, and then this odd notation of the presence of the defendant, which is odd when you think about it, because the only reason anyone is there is because the liberty of the defendant is potentially at stake. And the reason I thought about it was there are some judges, including the former chief judge, Preska, who I've talked to about this, who had a slightly different ritual, that seems to make more sense. She would say, good morning, Ms. Prosecutor, good morning, Mr. Defense Lawyer, and good morning, Mr. Jones, or whatever the name of the defendant was. It's a small civility and it might not seem like a big thing, but in the absence of that, you wonder what a defendant might be thinking about the impersonal nature of the justice system to which he is being subjected and which may wreak a jail sentence upon him when the judge who's presiding in the case can't even engage in the simple nicety of addressing him by name and saying good morning or good afternoon. I think judges need to remember, which mostly they do, but you can forget, because judges are human beings and human beings can be forgetful, that everyone's a person, everyone is trying hard, and people tend to be nervous in court. So just be respectful of that. Good luck to her. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, They can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. My guest this week is Eric Lander. He's a geneticist who has been at the forefront of the Human Genome Project, the development of the CRISPR gene editing technology, and other biomedical breakthroughs that will reshape our relationship to disease and heredity in the coming decades. He joins me to talk about his work at MIT and Harvard's Broad Institute, his attempts to regulate genetic experimentation on human subjects, and how a 1989 murder trial has formed the role of forensic evidence. We also talk through the ethics and legality of using gene editing systems and the difference between genetic correction and genetic enhancement. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Dr. Eric Lander, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Oh, pleasure.
0: You know, one reason I'm excited to talk to you, and there are many reasons, because we're going to talk about science, but one reason is that we're not going to talk about impeachment. (laughs) And it's it's kind of nice. Uh, We're recording this, I should note for listeners, the day after the president was impeached, and um, we're heading into the holidays, and there's lots of things that we should discuss that are not related to the president of the United States, but that are also very important for the country and for the world and for ethics, and for science, and for disease, and so I'm I'm really thrilled that you were able to join us.
1: Well, I'm delighted you're interested in the topics.
0: So let's do some basic stuff first, and build some blocks, and then we'll talk about complicated things like, or at least complicated to people like me, who flunked out of science, things like gene editing, and the eradication of disease caused by genetic bases. Among other things, you were many things. You are the president of the Broad Institute at Harvard
1: and MIT. Explain what that place does. Well, the Broad Institute's best understood by understanding its history. During the 1990s, a bunch of us in Boston were working on the Human Genome Project. We had what turned out to be the leading center for this international project to read out all the letters of the human DNA. And during that decade, lots of young people began coming together recognizing that reading out the genetic information was just the start. And that the real show was going to be figuring out how it underlies disease and how we can use that information to improve treatment and care for patients. So around the time the Genome Project was ending, we had the simple idea of could we pull together Harvard and MIT and the five leading Harvard-associated hospitals in a collaboration to take this next step of building genomic medicine. And the Broad Institute was the result. It brings together now, oh, more than uh, 4,500 people in Boston who are interested in building the tools, collecting the information, making it available, and taking on diseases ranging from diabetes and schizophrenia to cancer and infectious diseases, all with this common theme that if we understand genetics, we get a leg up on the causes of disease. So more basic questions. What is a genome? Well, a genome is all the information you got from your mom and all the information you got from your dad. It turns out genetic information is written in this four-letter code of A's, T's, C's, and G's. And from each parent, you got 3 billion letters of information. That information encodes the instructions for making about 20,000 proteins that make up your body. Everything from the The hemoglobin in your blood, to the keratin in your skin. And it also includes the instructions for when to turn those genes on and off, in what cells during development, what genes should be on and what kinds of neurons and what kind of blood cells in your immune system. So basically, it's it's the hard drive of information and the instructions for when to read it out. And it's kind of, it blows my mind. That a mere 3 billion letters of information, you know, that that fits like on a little memory stick, is all the genetic information needed to specify the body plan of a human being.
0: And so initially when the plan was undertaken to sequence the genome, map the genome, were practical applications of that understood at the time or was it just in the interests of
1: discovery? Well, in fact, the Genome Project was motivated by the idea of finding the genes for very rare genetic diseases. In the early 1980s, some ideas were developed that said if we knew enough about human genetic information, we could trace the inheritance of different parts of the genome, different parts of chromosomes within the genome, and be able to pin down where were the genes for Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis. You know, At the time, it was known there were thousands and thousands of these very rare genetic diseases that most people never heard of. And there was a method that people conceived that would let us find those disease genes. So I think the Genome Project was motivated by that medical application. What turned out to be very surprising is that there were hundreds of more applications that came from that fundamental knowledge. So as often happens, there's a very practical medical application that sends the scientific community off to collect very fundamental scientific information, which then turns out to have practical applications. And it's it's this virtuous cycle between fundamental basic science and highly applied medical science where each drives the other. And you wouldn't wouldn't know how far you could take something without – finding basics, applying it, finding more basics, applying it. It's amazing. If you ask me when we started the Human Genome Project in the 1980s, would I have imagined where we are today? I'd say not a chance, maybe off by a factor of 10 or a hundredfold.
0: That's a big factor. Can I ask what may be a silly question? Why would the focus at the outset have been on Very rare diseases as opposed to common diseases.
1: Ah, because rare diseases are easier. (laughs) Science is the art of the practical. When you have a rare disease, cystic fibrosis, Huntington's, they're caused by a defect in a single gene. And tracing its inheritance pattern in a family, that's pretty easy. You see how the disease goes down the family? You find some genetic spelling difference that shows the same pattern of inheritance in the family. And there you go. You know they must be pretty nearby, and you can search the region. We know today that the common diseases that affect most people, schizophrenia, diabetes, uh, heart disease, these are actually the products of hundreds, sometimes thousands, of genetic differences, each of which have much weaker effects. And in the the prehistoric days of the 1980s, we didn't yet have the tools to imagine even that we'd be able to find all those pieces. So you start with something you can do and then you build to take on things that are much, much, much harder. And today we can do those things. Thanks for that
0: explanation. So so genes can be altered. Uh, Sometimes that happens naturally, right? They can mutate. And sometimes through uh, application of certain systems and tools – they can be altered, and sometimes people use the verb edited. How does that
1: work? Well, okay, so you've now made a leap of a couple of decades from the concept yeah. of mapping. Because I only have Where an hour. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to make those leaps, but trying to, to fill in that transition there, a lot of the work until relatively recently – has focused solely on finding the disease genes. In fact, there's still a tremendous amount of that work still to go because if we can find the genes that underlie a disease, we can figure out the processes of disease and how to fix them. It's pretty much like if you have a problem with your car – and you don't know what parts are broken, it's really hard to fix the car. So the first important thing to do is pop the hood, look under the hood, figure out what parts are broken, and then go get new parts or add motor oil or something. So most of genetics is devoted to figuring out what's the problem, what's the, what we'd call in biology, the process or pathway, and where's their problem with it. Now, once you know that, there may be a lot of ways to fix it. There are genetic diseases that can be fixed by diet. Famous example. There's a genetic disease called phenylketonuria. And turns out people, the one in a million babies who are born with that disease, can't digest a certain nutrient called phenylalanine. And you just put them on a diet that doesn't have phenylalanine and they don't become mentally retarded. So that's an example where a dietary solution might work. There are other diseases where a drug can be very helpful. Cystic fibrosis, the gene was discovered in the late 1980s, took a couple decades, but now there is a pharmaceutical company that sells pills in a bottle that actually address the molecular defect, help fix the protein that is defective because of a genetic mutation. And that works very well. But there are going to be some cases, and that's what you're getting at with gene editing, where the solution is not going to come from a change in diet and it's not going to come from a pill in a bottle. But the best solution might be replace the gene or change the spelling of the gene. That's a very different thing. That's kind of a Buck Rogers thing. It's not It's not eat some drug. It's somehow get into the DNA sequence and change one letter out of the three billion letters of the genetic information and do it not just in one cell, but maybe in the vast majority of cells in your body, or at least the cells in the relevant organ in your body, maybe your lung if it's cystic fibrosis or your liver if it's something else. And I got to say, Preet, that in the 1990s, Non-scientists would always say, well, if you find the gene for a disease, why don't you just fix it? Why don't you just change the DNA sequence? And and as scientists, you know, there'd be a tendency to, to maybe a little condescendingly explain to people that, well, you can't do that. There's no way to get into the cell and change the letters of the genetic instructions in just that right place in so many cells. And I think we all thought that was the case for a long time.
0: So when when people were saying, why don't you just do that, the consensus in the scientific community and including for you was that was literally an impossibility?
1: Uh, Yeah. The more you knew, the less likely you thought that was because you have a DNA molecule or set of molecules that are 3 billion letters long – How in the world are you going to send instructions to one particular spot, you know, at 2 billion, 500 whatever million, a a T there and change it to an A? We didn't even have an addressing system, uh, a way to position the new instruction within a living cell. All of the work that had been done in molecular biology had really focused on DNA that was extracted from a cell. Cell's dead. you got DNA in a test tube. You can futz around with it. But this was a question of, in a living cell, how are we going to do search and replace? You know, on your word processor, you could type in a word and say, find me all instances of Preet Bahara. And then I want to turn it into Tweet Bahara. <laughs> and, you know, you could do that That's on been a word done, processor. I think. It's been done, I'm sure, many <laughs> in times. In a manner of speaking. You know, because you have a search and replace function, but there was no search and replace in living cells, except it turned out there was. Bacteria had worked out how to do this more than a billion years ago. And as usual, humans don't invent stuff in molecular biology. We discover that bacteria have been doing it all along, and then we borrow it from the bacteria. So it turns out bacteria have this as a defense mechanism. When they get attacked by viruses, they want to remember, oh, I've been attacked by this virus. That's a bad thing. And so they developed a defense mechanism that knows how to look for particular sequences of DNA and do a search and cut function. Whenever you see this virus come in, cut it. And it has a way to remember those sequences. Well, over the course of about 20 years, a set of scientists working in what were originally obscure corners of bacteriology discovered this remarkable, I guess it's like an immune system for bacteria. Just like if you've been infected, you develop an immune memory, the bacteria were able to remember where to cut things. Once they understood how that worked, they could, number one, give it new instructions, to have it cut anywhere, just like your word processor. You could type in anything and it can do a search. So now bacteria have a search protein and it knows how to cut. And then the second hard part was, can you make it work not just in a bacteria where it was evolved? Can you make it work in human cells? And by 2013, it was shown That you could transfer this machinery by making a few tweaks, maybe a lot of tweaks, but you could transfer it into human cells. And that meant suddenly bursting on the scene in 2013 was the ability to take a human cell and make an edit at particular places, send it to a certain gene of your choosing, the hemoglobin gene, and say, cut here. Or even replace the sequence by something else. So all this is a long-winded way to say search and replace on your word processor now can work in human cells for DNA because bacteria thought to invent it a billion years ago and it's gotten repurposed. Now, I don't want you to get the idea it's quite as simple as search and replace in a document because that's really simple. But the concept is essentially identical to that. And more and more people are developing ways to, say, deliver those search and replace instructions with a virus, make them more efficient. Now, you know, I'm required by being a scientist to tell you it's complicated. Things can go wrong you know maybe the search and replace will sometimes make a cut at the wrong place maybe it won't always be efficient maybe we can't get it to the right cells all sorts of people are working on ways to improve that but it's really opened up amazing possibilities in medicine
0: can we just put it in context for for a moment and bring some perspective to this so some years earlier before 2013 this was thought to be a medical and scientific impossibility then it was discovered that the opposite was true, and although it's complicated and it's still being tweaked, on the scale of scientific discovery, and with respect to disease in particular, how big and radical a uh, development is this?
1: Oh, very big and radical. I think it's fair to say the idea that bacteria had a search-and-replace function that was programmable and that it could be transferred to human cells and still work is mind-blowing. That was the result of, you know, this was not a eureka moment. It was 20 years of work by a whole bunch of scientists in different countries around the world. But together, that ensemble of about a dozen or more people changed the world by discovering and repurposing these mechanisms. And it it was totally shocking that this could happen. And what's amazing, of course, the way science works these days, it went from being shocking to – Oh, within two or three years, essentially every lab around the world routinely using it. We adjust very well to, oh my God, who thought this could possibly be done to, yes, of course, the new graduate student down the hall is using it for everything.
0: So how scary is this though? So, you know, when you began the conversation, you talked about taking drugs and changing your diet. That doesn't seem so crazy. That's not Buck Rogers stuff And You invoked that old series. Should people be at least initially, we'll get into some of the details of this and some controversies that have arisen over this process. But it sounds like frightening stuff that humans can go into people's genes and
1: edit them. Well, you got to parse this out a little bit. If you're talking about an existing patient with muscular dystrophy who has a genetic defect that prevents them, a misspelling of a gene that prevents them from making an important muscle protein – And you would like to replace that protein by, say, bringing in a new gene into the cell or editing. You know, that's part of a set of ideas called gene therapy that have been around for a long time. And this is a much better way to do gene therapy on a patient, perhaps. But the concept of either replacing the protein or adding back a gene, people have been working on, and that part isn't so scary because people might think, well, I can add genes and turn people into, you know, Marvel comic superheroes or something. No, I mean, we don't know how to do those things. What we can try to do is take a gene that isn't working and replace it. And for a living patient who is suffering from a disease, I would say taking a drug that fixes a problem or fixing the gene aren't ethically very different things. This information's not passed on to the next generation. There's a person there who can consent to it. There's an FDA that is going to make sure that it is safe and efficacious. I think the thing that people worry about and I worry about is taking the step to saying, should we do that on embryos? Should we edit an embryo and – that's where I think people – because there you're making genetic changes that are passed on to the whole population. You don't have a sick patient per se. You don't have anybody who can consent to it. That's a very different thing. So I would distinguish between treating an existing patient. Scientists call this somatic gene therapy because somatic refers to your, your whole body versus germline gene therapy. Germline refers to the cells that are passed on and on to the next generations. And it's this germline editing that sits in a different place and really requires a lot of serious attention.
0: Another basic concept or basic term that I want to address before we get into some more ethical issues, there is a mechanism called CRISPR, which apparently is not a mechanism for making vegetables. It is something different. Can you
1: explain what that is? It is. is. <laughs> Can
0: you explain what that
1: is? Well, all this stuff we've been talking about, about this mind-blowing ability to edit genomes in living cells, is done with this bacterial system that goes by the name CRISPR. Why it's called CRISPR? It's a long, shaggy dog story having something to do with, with the structure, of the bacterial sequence in its genome It, you know, clustered, regularly interspaced palindromic repeats, which will mean nothing to anybody, but it got abbreviated to CRISPR, and so we all call it CRISPR. But it's just this gene editing thing. It's just what we've been talking about. It's all of what we've been talking about goes by the name CRISPR.
0: One thing that is fascinating about this is how we go about thinking about the ethical implications, and you've already begun to talk about some of it. My first basic question is, time is short, resources are limited and complexity is there in different variations depending on the nature of the disease, as you talked about. How does the scientific and medical community think about a newly discovered tool or mechanism like this in terms of prioritizing efforts to fix certain diseases or, or fight certain diseases? In other words, there's, there's a million diseases. As you said before, originally the Human Genome Project was about figuring out rare diseases because they're simpler. Is, is that really the way that you prioritize now going forward? Or is there some thought of, Well, what is a disease that does
1: the greatest harm or that's the most um, painful? How do you think about that? Well, look, there's not a monolithic entity that decides what science gets done in America. There's basic research, a tremendous amount of basic research of how do you do genome editing. There are, oh, I don't know, in the last year, three or four amazing new systems that use CRISPR in totally unexpected ways – So the fundamental technology is rapidly progressing. And there you have people who develop technology saying, I think I have a cool idea. I'm going to find funding or use funding to develop it. And you want to have that explosion of creativity. You have a ton of people who are using CRISPR to study fundamental problems. You want to make a mouse that models a particular kind of cancer. That might have taken you three or four years to do that before by adding genes to the mouse using old-fashioned ways. But now you can make five or six genetic changes simultaneously and get a mouse with this new genetic composition. You can do that in the matter of a month or so. So this has dramatically accelerated fundamental biological research. And again, here we're not saying which disease or whatever. We have a, a, a large community of scientists And they're trying it all over the place to get a better understanding of causes of disease. Really, when you get to the questions you're asking, it's about treating patients. Should one attempt a clinical trial to treat a patient who has, oh, a brain disorder or a liver disorder or a muscle disorder or an eye disorder? And a lot of that, frankly, has to do with practical things. Can one deliver the CRISPR machinery to the right cell type? And there are a lot of companies that are working on things like this. And this is a good place for for me to note that there are a number of investigators at the Broad who have contributed to the discovery of all this CRISPR stuff and have started companies. And the Broad has licensed some of those things to, to companies And so I don't mean to run up the flag for any particular company, and I I want to flag that because we have licensed it, there are royalties that could come back. I want to just generally describe the field, but I got to at least make that statement, which I always feel obliged to, to make, that all of these different groups are in a way competing, trying to choose the most useful application that they see based on how practical it is based on whether you can really deliver, based on whether there's real patient need. Capitalism too, right? Because these are for-profit enterprises. If you're going to do this, you've got to finance it. And either the NIH, the National Institutes of Health would pay for a study, but that's not so typical in something like this. It's usually going to be done by startup companies.
0: Right, So it'll it'll depend a little bit on, on market.
1: It'll depend on markets markets of course care about the practicality they also care about whether there will be reimbursement for these things and so some combination of of scientific ideas and where one can get funding will determine what are the first applications that are being tried People want to do applications where they could see if it's working or not working more quickly rather than less quickly. But there's not any one person who's deciding it. What we have is we have a, a whole society and marketplace of ideas that are testing things out. We're at the stage where over the next several years, we'll begin to see some of these applications to inherited genetic diseases that, that will be tested in patients. So how safe is this? Well, that's one of the first critical things that you have to find out in any clinical trial. You want to ask, if you try to edit this one letter, how often do you accidentally edit other letters in the genome, what's called off-target editing? Well, we can measure that in mice and we can measure it in cells, but one of the questions will be measuring it in human beings. So the first part of a clinical trial is a safety study their questions, if you mis-edit some other gene in the genome, could it, God forbid, lead to cancer? People worry about that. I think this is where it is really good that we have a Food and Drug Administration that is the best in the world and that is careful. These are amazing technologies. There are lots of cool applications. And they have to be done slowly and responsibly because you can always imagine ways that things could backfire. And so step one is prove safety and then show that you get efficacy, that you could say take cells in the the back of your eye and the retina that have some dominant mutation that will lead to blindness and knock out those genes. So every one of those studies, the questions can be asked, how are you going to know it's working? You can't just willy-nilly squirt something into somebody's eye and hope for the best.
0: And you think, you think the FDA is competent and good about being able to regulate a new technology like this?
1: FDA is, is a traditional whipping boy where people complain about the regulator. I got to say, in all of my experiences with the FDA, I have been deeply impressed that they understand the science. They understand the urgency for patients. They know patients want this. And they also know that a lot of care is needed to do it. So I watch them you know every time i i see the fda i watch them thinking about how they sail between these these two places of you know not being so caught up in the urgency that you're not careful and not being you know just unnecessarily cautious that you're not going to be willing to allow proper experiments it is a tough job but i got to say i have a lot of respect for our us drug regulator they're pretty smart and and they're pretty caring and uh, I think they have served us well by, by letting things go swiftly but not recklessly ahead. So <laughs> the
0: interesting standard,
1: um, hard to define. Of course it's hard to define. It's a judgment call. Yeah. And so you ask, what's the quality of the people making the judgment? And I think, uh, you know, it's tough. But the whole world looks to the U.S. FDA for, for guidance and uh, I, think, I think they are, you know, the regulator that sets the standard for the world. So, you know, people are probably listening
0: now, and the theory is interesting, and the generalized potential that we've been talking about is interesting. Is there anything you can say to folks about what particular usage in the near sort of term is most promising, people who have a certain kind of genetic-based disease should be
1: optimistic about, or is it all too distant? The first thing that's getting done is actually applications in cancer, not to change anybody's inherited disease genes, but to modify certain immune cells that will attack a cancer. There are these these new immunotherapies to take your own immune cells and give them new instructions to attack certain proteins found only on the cancer. And CRISPR has already entered the clinic for those applications.
0: Which kinds of cancer?
1: Oh, many different kinds of cancers. You know, using the immune system against cancers is a very general strategy. So, you know, you'll see it used in many ways. If you're asking about editing inherited genes for diseases, there are people thinking about sickle cell anemia, for example. I think there are people thinking about these inherited blindnesses. There are oh, maybe a couple dozen applications. And I think you will see clinical trials and, you know, if they were to work, you could see approvals easily within the next five years for some sets of genetic diseases. You know, I always look much further out and ask, you know, when we really know what we're doing, what will be the limiting step? I think think for these inherited genetic diseases, the big challenge will be delivering the – the genetic editing machinery to the right tissues. It's not so easy to necessarily get it into the brain and get it to the right cells. So I'm already seeing a generation of scientists growing up who are thinking about these issues of delivery and other things. Now, I got to say, Preet, I, I take the position of trying very hard not to overpromise. So I don't want to promise, oh, there are going to be therapies for lots of things in the next five years. I, because I, I think overpromising is a really bad thing for science to do. What I can say is we've made enormous progress in figuring out what are the causes of rare genetic diseases. In the last six, seven years, the causes of common genetic diseases. That's shifted completely our ideas about what we would treat. And then with tools like CRISPR and other things, we're beginning to see how we could do it. So if I look ahead over the next couple of decades, I could imagine that a significant part of therapies would not be a pill in a bottle, but at least in favorable cases, could be a genetic modification of cells in a certain place. So I don't think people should be running out expecting it next year, but I think steadily we're going to see this as a modality, as as a method of treatment that we never had before, and if we're really careful and we don't screw up, it will work well and we'll begin to understand how broadly we can use it. And if that sounds like I'm being a little cautious on all that, that's very deliberate. Caution I've, I've is, been caution like is that. good. <laughs> caution is good. You know, the Human Genome Project was finished. A number of reporters wanted me to, you know, declare that, oh, disease would now be conquered. And no, no, no. What the Human Genome Project did was give us the ability for the first time to peel back the curtain and see what was going on in disease. Now, that is a steady step on the path to conquering disease. Right. Look,
0: under promise and over deliver is a good mantra for scientists,
1: too. Exactly. That is exactly the thing. But integrated over a long enough period of time, it's stunning. You look at infectious disease from the time that people discovered that bacteria cause infectious diseases to the time that we had penicillin and other antibiotics and pennies a dose, that was probably 75 years, but it changes the world. That's the kind of of agenda we're in. It's not the agenda of this news cycle or of any given political term. It's the agenda that says – If we can take on diseases and it gets done in half a century or three-quarters of a century and our children and our children's children never have these particular problems, I don't think we have any apologies to make. So we've been talking
0: about good things that CRISPR can do. What are some misuses and should we be concerned about those misuses
1: and how much? Oh, yeah, of course. I got to say that the other topic of editing babies – Using CRISPR to do germline modification of embryos has been a topic of enormous concern to the scientific community. You know, if you want to prevent genetic diseases, you can already do that in many, many ways. The main reason that children with genetic diseases are born to families today is the family never knew they were carriers. If you really cared about that, you'd start with genetic screening. And we don't have routine genetic screening. Beyond that, there's something called in vitro fertilization with pre implantation genetic diagnostics. That is, you do standard in vitro fertilization. You fertilize a bunch of eggs with some sperm, and you let them grow up a little bit in the Petri plate, and you pull off one cell. And you ask when you genetically, when you genotype that cell, is this embryo carrying the genetic disease or not? And you just re-implant those that don't carry the genetic disease. So I have many colleagues even here at the Broad who are carrying a genetic disease and they have healthy children who didn't inherit it because they took advantage of in vitro fertilization with genetic diagnostics to just pick the embryos that, that wouldn't inherit it.
0: How expensive is that compared to using gene editing? What's the cost of all this CRISPR stuff?
1: Well, the CRISPR stuff would be done on in vitro fertilized embryos. So it's an add on top of. It doesn't avoid everything I just said because you would still have to fertilize, at least today, the way this is done. You still have to get eggs and sperm and grow them up. And then you would say CRISPR them. But people would say maybe it's just easier to just select the ones I want to reimplant. So, for all these reasons, the scientific community has come together and said, we really ought to have some clear understanding of when is it appropriate to even conceive of doing CRISPR editing of babies, and what would be a responsible clinical path? I told you all the considerations in clinical trials for, for a, a living patient with a disease. Well, what would the, the similar clinical trials need to be for this? So there's
0: a particular incident that happened in China. There
1: was an incident which made this far more salient. I think for many people, it was kind of assumed that nobody would be so stupid, so unethical as to try this until all this was worked out.
0: And by this, you mean engaging in in gene editing of an embryo.
1: Gene editing of an embryo, exactly. And yet, there was a scientist in Shenzhen in China called He Jiankui, and uh, Dr. He... Went ahead and genome edited two embryos and re implanted them, and at least claims that two twin girls were born that were genome edited. And, you know, the entire thing was broadly regarded as, as a total disaster. The particular genes that he was editing, it was really unclear why you would edit those genes. It, it was not clear there's much benefit. It appears there were great irregularities with getting ethical approvals for that. It was done in secret. The the particular edits don't seem to have worked out exactly right. Almost everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And people were so shocked when this got announced about a year ago at a genome editing summit that was held in Hong Kong that two different groups, the World Health Organization, set up a panel of people to ask when should stuff like this be allowed? And a bunch of National Academies of Sciences in the US and the UK and many other countries organized a commission to ask, under what circumstances is there even a a responsible way to do clinical trials of this? And as it happens, because it's been a topic I've written about, I was asked to serve on that commission, so, so I am. And I think our instructions are to come out with a report sometime in the course of 2020 trying to answer those questions about, are there even responsible clinical paths? And if so, for what applications? And I have an open mind to all that, but I certainly feel these are really, really important questions to get right. And rushing down the path of making permanent edits to the human gene pool that are passed on to the next generation. Now, this is just something we ought to be really thoughtful before starting. But how do you regulate that? Oh, there are lots of regulations. It's In the United States, it's against the law. Right. Did the gentleman in China break any law? Well, the problem is it's a little complicated. I don't think we all have a clear idea of how Chinese law applies in this case. And the Chinese may not have either because, you know, the laws may not have been written for this purpose. I think it's a wake-up call that people have to look and see. Most of Europe, that experiment would be illegal. United States, it is absolutely illegal. In the UK, you would need regulatory approval that would make this all very visible. They do allow certain types of embryo manipulations. So lots of the world has it. Now, people say, well, how are you going to prevent a rogue scientist from doing this? I was going to ask that. My answer is, (laughs) yeah, the problem is, You know, well, okay. you're an attorney. How are you going to prevent anybody from ever murdering somebody else? You won't. But you will have laws that make murder illegal and you will have few murders. If you ask here, is one rogue scientist the thing we're worried about? Is that going to really harm the world? Or is what we're worried about going down a path where thoughtlessly – we agree to lots of genome editing and creating genetically modified babies, I'm much more concerned about the policies that nations adopt than that there could be rogue actors. Because rogue actors, as terrible and unethical as that is, will do limited harm to specific individuals and they should go to jail for it. I much more care about the policies that we adopt.
0: Can I ask you an ignorant question based on watching science fiction films? Yeah. (laughs) And that is, so we talked about all the good uses. And to my uneducated mind, what all of this brings to memory from watching a lot of crazy movies is, can you edit genes to do things that are not related to disease to make, you know, a a population of people uh, have a higher IQ or be taller or be stronger or be able to run faster? Is is that nonsense or is that something that's a real possibility in the future?
1: It's somewhere in between those two. Um, it turns out that most of the traits you just talked about fall into that complex genetic bucket that are not single gene disorders. So they may involve. We know with height involves well over a thousand different genetic variants or, around the genome, and so you might have to make very large number of changes to have any significant impact. It's not something that anybody should go try to do today. Is it possible sometime in the in the future? Well, you never want to rule out anything. You know, the initial things will be directed at single-gene things. But if you go far enough out, are there people who somewhere between hypothesize and hallucinate about, can we make human beings that are resistant to radiation for deep space flight? People talk about such things. I'm not enthusiastic about seeing any of that start. Is that realistic? Well, nobody knows how they would do it yet. Yeah. But you know there are some bacteria that are highly radiation resistant so you can you can hallucinate that maybe we'll figure out how to do that for human cells. You know this is the thing. If you look in nature and and you say I see something in nature, bacteria that are resistant to radiation, maybe I could repurpose it to humans. When you say is it realistic? Is it realistic in the next 10 years? Absolutely not. Is it realistic in the next century? Maybe, hard to know. I think that's why we really have to get clarity as to what we're doing, have a regulatory system, have ethical understandings, make decisions among nations. Why do we want to do these things? The future is a very long time. Many things can happen. And I think we have to lay firm regulatory and scientific and ethical foundations going forward.
0: How do you rate the United States in terms of innovation in this field and genetics?
1: Well, a tremendous amount of the innovation of actually applying CRISPR in human cells It's come from the United States. A lot of the discovery of this system in bacteria, you know, that came from many different countries. I gotta say, that was really an international ensemble that did that. But a tremendous amount of the innovation around repurposing these systems to humans and to applying them to diseases, the innovative energy is in the United States. Now, that's not to say there's not a lot of important work going on elsewhere, but disproportionately in, in the US.
0: Are there any particular innovations in the near term that you're excited about and that people may not be so aware of?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of innovations that to a geeky scientist are so cool uh, you know, just in the past month, a colleague of mine here at the Broad Institute and at Harvard published a nifty new way to, to do CRISPR genome editing where you can add back lots more information and you have even better control. And, you know, I know of more such things that will be coming down the pike from, from different people. So at the level of a scientist, every couple months something, you know, really amazing comes along. At the level of the kinds of decisions that we should be making as a society to choose our world and try to take advantage of the upsides of this without creating dystopian downsides, I think the questions are pretty squarely on the table and it's time to sit back calmly and think through You know, what are our values, what are our tools for doing this, what kind of international conversation has to go on because – You know, it's one human race, one human species. And so we want to be able to have international conversation around it. So I I think those questions are posed and the nifty scientific advances don't really change the fundamental issues. These are going to be about values and sometimes conflicting values. I'm not saying these are easy questions. That's why I'm trying to pay a lot of attention on this commission. But they're really about values that persist over, over time.
0: I don't want to let you go without talking just for a few minutes about the area where science intersects with law enforcement, the latter of which is my expertise, and you have a lot of experience there, and you've, you've served on bodies, and, you know, people watch television, they watch CSI, and often there is scientific evidence and testimony relating to science. The one that people are most familiar with is, in recent years, DNA testing, which I think everyone agrees, if done properly, is pretty much foolproof, Correct.
1: Well, as long as properly is defined properly, yes.
0: <laughs> but but unlike, unlike other kinds of science uh, that I think you've also written about and talked about, whether you're talking about hair analysis and hair identification and some other things, DNA is superior.
1: Oh, yeah. So look, back in 1989, I, through a series of accidents, got involved in a case in the Bronx, People v. Castro in, in New York State. It was one of the first cases in which DNA evidence came in. And there, it was practiced so sloppily as to be just abominable. And the evidence got thrown out and it led to – so I I was a a pro bono expert witness in that case. For the defense? For the defense. I insisted on not being paid for this thing because I think this was about scientific integrity. And there's a long shaggy dog story here because all of the experts who testified for the defense – got together during the course of this pretrial hearing and met with all the experts who had testified for the prosecution. Without the lawyers, right? Without the lawyers. And, and we persuaded them to switch sides, that they eventually agreed that the evidence was terrible. And so this was science at its best. Science is sitting around a conference room looking at the, the evidence and saying, no, this stuff is just terrible. And so on the strength of the fact that no remaining witnesses were left other than the testing lab itself that had brought the evidence, the judge rightly concluded that DNA fingerprinting as practiced back then was not admissible into courts because it was terrible. And that led to a lot of improvements in standards and national academy committees and other things. And because DNA was based on first-rate science, it was possible to have that technology respond to the point today where a DNA you know, sample from a single individual can be reliably, definitively identified and matched to another sample. It gets more complicated if you have mixtures of DNAs from lots of different people or tiny amounts of DNA. But basically, DNA can be done very, very, very well. But the surprise was that once we had something that was an honest-to-God gold standard, you could go back to cases where people had been convicted on other forensic evidence, like hair, for example. And some examiner had come into court and said, oh, I put the hair from the the defendant under the microscope and I compared it to the hair found at the scene of the crime and they are identical – and it turns out we now know, because you can take the little DNA that's found at the, at the base of the hair and run it, that, say, in the FBI's own crime lab, when they said it was an identical match, about one time in nine, it was just not the same person. One time in nine is a really significant error rate. If you told the jury, oh, the scientific examiner for hair said these were identical, that might override all other evidence in the case because it must be that that was the defendant at the scene of the crime. But if you told the jury, oh, and by the way, they get this wrong about one time in nine, suddenly that piece of evidence is very different. Well, this is the problem. We now know that for lots of other kinds of forensic evidence other than DNA that's been used for decades, sometimes more than half a century, they get it wrong. It turns out, shockingly, I say this in jest, every forensic technology is not perfect. And the only way you can know how good it is is by testing it, by blindly giving examiners large numbers of cases – where you know the right answer and they don't know the right answer and empirically finding out how often do they get it right. This is like the most obvious thing in the world, that the only way a forensic technology should be validated enough to come into court is that you've empirically tested it. And in the scientific community, this was kind of settled in the 1600s, that empirical testing is is the only thing that we should believe. But we have a lot of technologies in the courts that have never been subjected to empirical testing because they were admitted by a court 40 years ago. And because of the great respect for precedent that courts have, they say, well, it was admitted before. It should be admitted again. And it's very hard to force people to do empirical tests. Ballistics, you fire a bullet from a gun. Because in the last couple of years, people have done the experiment, we find out It's pretty good, but they get it wrong, and they get it wrong at a rate more than 1 in 100, you know, sometimes like 1 in 60. Even fingerprints, which the FBI declared to be infallible in a document it issued in the 1980s, the FBI itself ran a brilliant study where they measured the rate of error in fingerprints. They found it wasn't zero. It was a number. It was pretty good. It was one in the, the several hundred. So for all these reasons, what DNA has told us is that the courts have been very accepting of forensic technologies without meaningful scientific evidence. And so I think a lot of us feel like anything that comes into court wearing the mantle, the robe of science, claiming all of the trappings of science ought to have to live up to the standards of science.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's very easy to be overwhelmed by by that. By something cloaked in the language of science, fingerprints. Also, I have a chapter in my book where I talk about a very famous misidentification of a fingerprint of somebody who the FBI thought was responsible for the the killings of 191 people in that Madrid train attack. Brandon Mayfield. Brandon I Mayfield, and they got I it know wrong. It well. And they got and they got it. I spent a lot of time on that case in my book, and they got it wrong. But everyone is sort of blinded. You know, that the experts say, "Well, this is science; you have to accept it." That's not my opinion and you know it causes people to forget to question maybe the methods by which they were doing it the standards that they were
1: observing um and the methodology so it's not perfect this is a topic i think we we both care a lot the law does have rules and and we know there's there's this rule that that says the evidence has to be based on reliable principles and methods that have been reliably applied these federal rules of evidence and the, the battle here is what does it mean to have reliable principles and methods that have been reliably applied? And I think a lot of people in science – and this is something I've, I've worked on – say that that word reliable means empirical testing. There is no reliability based on anything other than I actually tried it and I measured it. And that turns out shockingly to be controversial in the forensic community and I hope in the long run – we overcome that because forensics will get better and better when it holds itself to those standards. That's what we've learned from science. Even if you're frustrated that you find out your method wasn't as good as you thought, once you can measure its accuracy, you can make it better.
0: The nature of genius and the nature of scientific genius is very elusive and hard to understand, but you've been a scientist for a long time and have been part of discoveries and innovations. Do you have a theory of what Qualities are in people who are capable of innovation and scientific discovery. What's the DNA of, a, of an
1: innovator? <laughs> so, okay, couple of things. I'm not a particular fan of using words like genius because that suggests that the people did are you, – Did you reject the grant you got? Well, I, I – <laughs> you're referring to this <laughs> MacArthur grant. Which is also also known as the – Genius award, yes. but not by the MacArthur's or by me. All right. That's that's what the press dubs All it. Right, the MacArthur's fine. no better no, no than for to call que- this a genius award. No, no further, further questions. questions. No. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> counselor. Um, so, uh, no, I think I think when you, when you label some people geniuses, it's very off-putting to others. I don't think it's about genius, and I don't think it's necessarily in your DNA, too. I think both of those suggest that it's inherent. I actually think that... Scientific discovery, scientific innovation, even really bold stuff comes from other things, and and a lot of those get learned. A willingness to float ideas, lots of ideas, because most ideas will be wrong. And people who, when they float a wrong idea, then feel bad and don't float more ideas – Well, they're cutting themselves off from what is the real secret of innovation, which is persistence in ideas, trying lots of things. So I think being able to feel comfortable with being wrong and just putting yourself out there helps a lot. I think the other thing that helps a lot is coming with a new perspective to a problem. The greatest progress is usually made by somebody who's coming from – one field and looking at a problem in a way nobody's ever looked before. If you're the 20th person to look at something the same way, it's really tough to come up with something truly novel. But if you're bringing in insight from engineering to biology or from mathematics to somewhere else, it turns out to be easier. So a lot of it is is looking differently at problems. So I, I think there's like a whole list of things that are teachable and that we fail to teach people about how to be a good scientist. And in our schools, what we try to do is teach people to memorize factoids in the textbook so that they can answer the problems. That's nothing like science. Science is about playing around and looking for patterns, learning to ask good questions, failing bringing a new perspective to something. Because I see people around the Broad Institute, we have an amazingly innovative, brilliant community. And I got to say, I can think of 50 different kinds of scientists here who look totally different in the way they approach things. So that's why I reject this idea that there's genius or it's in your DNA. I think this is a question of, you know, how do you make great baseball players? I don't believe all great baseball players are born. I think they grow up in environments where baseball is is a loved activity and they put a lot of time and effort into it and they, they learn how to do it and they talk to other people how to do it. And I think we would be wrong to imagine that doing science is reserved to some small set of people. I think most children are natural scientists. They are curious about the world. They ask a zillion questions. They want to experiment. And I think we actively, in many cases, drive that out of them. And that's a real shame because I think the natural human condition is to be a scientist and an explorer. And we just have to help people learn how to cultivate that fabulous love.
0: Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. Dr. Eric. Well, Lander, it's great to talk to you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for being thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. That was that was a pleasure. Really fun. Take care, Preet. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Eric Lander. Hey, folks. I hope everyone had a wonderful, fabulous, amazing New Year's Eve. Uh, I myself am recording this before New Year's. It's Monday, December 30th, and I'm in my hotel room in Jerusalem. Uh, As some of you know, I've been traveling in Jordan and in Israel and seeing a lot of different things with my family. I'm here with my wife and kids, also my parents. My dad turned 80 just a short while ago, so we thought a family vacation would be a good idea. So there are three generations of Bararas here, and we're soaking up history, soaking up culture, learning about religion, and also a lot about conflict and war. And I essentially had two goals for this trip. One was to kind of shut out the news and not pay too much attention to American politics and the news cycle that drives us all crazy all year long, sort of refresh and re-energize and clear my head. And the other was to learn about the things that I'm seeing here in Jordan and Israel. And we've done a lot of that. We hung out in the desert. We went to the Israeli Supreme Court. We went to the Knesset. We saw Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock. We've been to the Western Wall. We went to Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ. And we've been overwhelmed by the history. We've also been consuming a lot of food. It might not fit on the plane back. But it's not been fully possible to ignore the news coming out of the United States. Some has penetrated and I think requires comment, especially given where I am. And it's terrible and heartbreaking. I'm talking, of course, about the recent rash wave, really, of anti-Semitic violence, hate crimes, intolerance, not here in the Middle East, but back home in New York. In the last number of days, there have been a series of attacks, hate crimes perpetrated against people in the Jewish community. There have been stabbings, also an anti-Semitic fatal shooting in Jersey City at a kosher supermarket. Nine or ten awful events just in the last couple of weeks. And then on Saturday, there was a horrific event in Muncie, New York, where a man barged in on a group of observing Orthodox Jews celebrating Hanukkah. He stabbed five of them, sending several to the hospital. One, I believe, still remains in critical condition. And why did he do it? Because they were Jewish. Muncie, New York, is in Rockland County, which is within the jurisdiction of my old office, the Southern District of New York. And so the SDNY has filed a five-count criminal complaint against the perpetrator, charging essentially a hate crime. More specifically, obstruction of free exercise of religion and involving an attempt to kill. According to the complaint, the perpetrator used a machete, a long knife. Also according to the complaint, the perpetrator kept a journal in which there were all manner of anti-Semitic references. Investigators also discovered that on his phone, he had conducted certain searches, including Why did Hitler hate the Jews? And also, German-Jewish temples near me. So I want to thank my old office, the FBI, the state police, and the NYPD for all their great work. And this should be prosecuted as a hate crime. That's good. Hate crime is among the worst kinds of crime. It may be the most insidious criminal cancer you can have in a tolerant society. It is hatred attached to violence. It's a form of terrorism. It's an accusation of otherness. It's an incitement to other people. It's also an invitation to hateful copycats. And it's intolerable. And so prosecution can bring justice. It can bring accountability and punishment. But prosecution doesn't cure hatred. It doesn't always bring peace. It doesn't bring harmony and tolerance, not by itself. I've been a prosecutor most of my adult professional life, but I know the limits of what the law can do. And we all have a responsibility in our society and in our culture to not tolerate it, to not laugh it off, to not perpetuate it. We have a responsibility to teach our kids, to teach our neighbors, not to hate. And when things like this happen, especially when they seem to come as a wave, it affects not just the Jewish community, it affects every community. And no community is safe. And we should try to be as honest as possible about what causes it and who the perpetrators are. They're not always white nationalists. We need to condemn it, no matter who you are, what community you're from, and call for greater understanding. The NYPD says hate crimes against the Jewish community are up 18%. That's a lot. This Thursday, my last day with my family in Israel, the day the podcast will drop, we're visiting Yad Vashem. As you know, Israel's memorial to victims of the Holocaust. And I want to be careful not to too quickly invoke Hitler and the Holocaust, but never forget means something for all of us. One resolution I have is that in the coming year, on this podcast and in other places, I want to talk more about hate, explore the origins of hate, and what we can do about it. Because politicians will come and go. But the things that fester in people's hearts, hatred and racism and anti-Semitism, those things can fester for a long time. It doesn't always take a politician to bring them out. We all need to figure out a way to create an environment that is intolerant of intolerance. Let's all commit ourselves to that. The senior audio producer is David Tateshore. And the cafe team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Curlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.